Okay, so terrible question. How about John 2 through 4? I mean, that's what we read. Small chunk. You know, this is what's nice. If you did the red book, so much less. (laughs) Um, What did this do for you? Did you have new new insights into... um, into Jesus, into wisdom, um, were there things that sort of uh, pricked you or bothered you? Um, where, where did the readings take you this week? Well, I did the wrong, wrong thought. Uh, I'm a chapter head of the head of the body. <laughs> what I did was I took notes on, on page one of this series, and I thought when I picked up my book to do the study, I thought, well, we've already done that, so I just flipped over to the next one. So, so these readings did not do much for you this week. <laughs> You're okay. I bet you've read them before. <laughs> to me, they're, um, when, I, when I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm getting like a chronology, mm-hmm. and when I read John, I get a spiritual... I, I feel a lot more spiritual about things. It's, spiritual may not be the right word, but it's it's a little bit more in awe. Hmm. Um, because because it's not presented. I mean, it's presented in a way that yeah, it brings the Bible, it brings John into you, and it brings you into John. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I feel like I hear you saying that the, in the other Gospels you get more of a description of events and in John you get more insight into what those events mean. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. What they mean to me. What they mean to you. Yeah. Great. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I don't get the same feeling when I read those. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. I realized until I was, I was reading actually Wikipedia, but um, that uh, I had never thought of. I thought Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were all like a little group. But John came after everything had happened and was trying to put everything in a perspective I understood uh, that would come up with correct what was going on, or but but a, a way of explaining or, or talking about things in a in a. Uh, to see. He just took it to a whole new level with his language and understanding. And I really like that. And when we get to the born again thing, I uh, have a comment on that, but I'll, I'll guess I'll wait for that one. Okay. Well, whenever you're ready. Well, the born again thing was uh, when I was 11, we were living in a teeny little Texas town called Sour Lake and went to a teeny little Baptist church. And uh, so that summer, uh, I went off to the church camp, and I was really struggling with uh, whether or not to uh, profess my faith. This is what you do in the Baptist church. Yes, yes. And uh, so I uh, prayed about it and everything, and, and at, at camp I made a decision. And I know, of course, camp is sort of pointed toward that, but it was a very important stage in my life, and I realized that difficult decisions, or just big decisions, I've always used the pattern that I started there. And so, uh, then I did profess my faith and, and uh, was immersed, you know? Yeah. But I really felt like a different person that summer. Mm-hmm. I really remember that. 
I felt lighter. I don't remember what, you know, what the yeah. thing was, but I felt lighter. We moved away from the little city after that, but uh, that was a good experience for me. It's amazing what the sacramental baptism does to an adult. Thank you. Uh, couldn't what you've experienced there because uh, one time when I worked in by the Christian initiation for adults in the Catholic Church, we had a young woman there who was just so so shy she would not speak up, you know, and so forth. But but the night she was baptized, she did a complete reversal. She just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> you know, and I mean, from that time on, she was always a talker and she mm -hmm. was happy and, you know, and we don't always see things like that because with babies, you know, they're saying, oh, what's that on my head? <laughs> you know, but um, anyway, it, it does make a difference when you see adults. Before that, for that reason, we, we lived in Australia when my kids came of that age, they went to an Anglican school. And so they would go through confirmation there. But they hadn't been baptized. Because I was raised with the belief that you should be of decision age before you do And so I asked, we were, I was at that time going to a combined uh, Presbyterian Congregational Church. And, uh, because I was a Presbyterian for years. And uh, so I asked them, they were doing a confirmation class at the church. And so I asked them if they could, instead of having the sprinkles that, that uh, Episcopal school, which with no ceremony, that they could, you know, have a ceremony for my kids, and they did. And it was, it was very meaningful to me. So. Anybody else? Well, maybe we should just wade through our days. Does that seem okay? And as always, interrupt me. I don't want to try to trick you into thinking what I <coughs> thought was important is. And you can say that that's not important. Um, but, you know, it's great that we got to read the Water to Wine story because we just got to hear that, you know, two Sundays ago. And um, it's interesting what they highlight in the video was the quantity of wine. Um, she lets you know that there's like 10,000 vines with 10,000 clusters with 10,000 grapes. That's not in the Bible. That's in a Jewish apocryphal book called Jubilees. So, you know, the Jubilee year is every 50th year when there's basically debts are forgiven, lands are restored, etc. And this book of Jubilees um, is about the Jubilee of Jubilees. <laughs> it's sort of kind of like heaven on earth, uh, and, and, and it's revealed in these insane quantities uh, of, of, well, things like olives and grape juice, etc. Um, so one approach to the Cana story is about the quantity of wine. And just to put that in perspective, uh, there's... Um, you know, each one of those vats holds like a hundred, holds 30 to 50 gallons, and there's six of them. So you're, you're talking somewhere between 180 and, um, well, I, just, I don't know why I just blanked, and nine, no, no, 120 to 150, and there's six of them. Yeah, so you're talking about... 
Yeah, up to 900 <laughs> gallons of wine. Now, you know, a gallon is going to give you four bottles. So just think about the quantity of bottles of wine at this party. It's staggering. And we don't know how big the wedding was and if the guests were even able to drink that quantity of wine. Um, so I think one highlight is on, the, is on the abundance, and I think that's an interesting theme of reversal. They go from scarcity to abundance. The other theme is that they go from... Um, it's a backward thing. The, the quality of the wine should go down... <laughs> as you drink it, and um, this is a good home tip. The quality wine should go down. You don't drink a $10 bottle and then a $100 bottle. This is not wise. Uh, so, but in the story, it goes, it's the reverse. Uh, I mean, it goes up. So it could be about that, but I, as I put to you um, about 10 days ago, I think there's another element in the story that the, that the book misses, which is that this water is for Jewish uh, ritual purification. It's water to wash off things that we wouldn't even consider germs, you know, like touching a cockroach. Uh, you know, you, you think through it, and we have antibacterial soap, but even if you do that, you'd probably still feel like, like I can't get that gross off. I mean, that's kind of the world they... I mean, again, we don't live in a much different world, uh, not an entirely different world, but there were many things like cockroaches, mm -hmm. like women, and Gentiles, and, you know, um, dead bodies and things like that. Um, probably if you touched a dead body, you would also feel like antibacterial soap would not fix that for you, because it's so foreign to our day-to-day ex -day experience, right? So what's interesting is Jesus turns that water into wine. Not just spring water or a jug. Water that's meant to wash off our dirt gets changed into wine. You know, again, I, I, I think it's an interesting thought as to the inside of that. We can get bogged down with, did Jesus really do it? <laughs> Why can't I? You know, uh, that would be a really lucrative skill for clergy to have, turning water into wine. Instead of thinking about the factuality, I'm not saying it did or didn't happen. I mean, what's important, though, they said, is the insight. So, with God, scarcity can be turned into abundance. With God, um, regular can become extraordinary. And then, maybe even deeper, uh, the things that remove what bothers us culturally can be instead celebrated. <laughs> it's like turning Brillo pads into party favors. So I think in that sense, it, it, it's this invitation not to say, hey, we shouldn't be afraid of touching roaches, um, but, but maybe going deeper than that. Um, instead of being afraid to celebrate difference, especially in the things that we think are ordinary or even not good, uh, God is able to bring some really fine wine out of those things. I don't want to repeat the sermon too much, but again, uh, I think this is the journey from loving somebody in spite of their habits 
to loving them because of their habits. Thinking about the things in my spouse that bother me. I don't want to totally repeat the sermon, but my wife's a clutter bug. I'm just going to say that. She is. And, uh, but she also really likes the house picked up. So I kind of rush around and pick up clutter. And uh, I used to love her in spite of that. But it, it occurred to me a few years ago, I think because she told me for the hundredth time, look, I, you know, I'll pick that up later. I'm leaving it now so I can have time with you instead of time picking it up. <laughs> so my priority is time with you first. I'll pick it up later. Well, uh, that's something to love because of who she is instead of in spite of. So thinking about what's behind the behavior instead of just the behavior is sort of like the theme of the day, sight and insight. (laughs) I hope that makes sense. Uh, And I think as we grow in love with somebody, hopefully we start to love them even in the habits that can be annoying and frustrating. That's not always true, but I mean, hopefully. Well, I think that's probably um, the Christian way. Uh, what, what is expected of us as Christians, we don't have to like everybody, but we are supposed to love everybody, but love has a lot of different meanings. Mm-hmm. Love sometimes is just accepting a person for who they are. You know, you can't change them, and that's just who they are. And, uh, or it's just been doing a kind act for a foreigner. Or, you know, or sometimes it's even a simple thing of opening a door for somebody. Because uh, when the one thing that I really like about John is that there's, John is, uh, there's that personal touch with God, with John. He's a mystic, you know. He's had years in 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 isolation. He survived everybody else. So he's had a lot of time to think and pray. And uh, you know, one of the things I was wondering about the other day was um, we talk a lot about God, uh, and we uh, and uh, from my perspective. We've been trained by the church to look to the church for our spiritual inspiration and for nurturing us and so forth. But, um, you know, I I do a parallel to human life and life with God. And, you know, when we're born, we're helpless babies, and then we grow up to be children. And we are so dependent on our parents, and we love our parents. If we've got good parents, and you know, and then gradually we get to the point of where we become adults, and so then we still love our parents, but yet we are taking care of ourselves, and we're growing and so forth. Well, I'm wondering if the same thing doesn't ha- happen with uh, our relationship with God. Is that our relationship with God is to be as personal and intimate? and loving as we are with our, per- our parents or the person we love and so forth. And so, uh, yes, when we're growing up, we get trained in religious life, you know, and we learn about God and so forth. But there comes a time when we are an adult and then we walk with God as an adult 
have been still very dependent on God, but then we're, you know, God expects us to be partners with Him, with God. And uh, I think sometimes we really miss out on thinking like that because we don't spend enough time just being with God, just talking with God. Yes, we say prayers, and that's good. Yes, we read scripture, that's good. But how much do we actually quieten down and sit with God and listen to what God has to say to us? Because when we do that, then God really begins to work with us. And significant changes come about in our lives while we're listening and hearing. Because there needs to be that communication and uh, with God. Because God is not a silent partner. Uh, it doesn't mean he's going, to, he's going to tap you on the shoulder every morning and say, okay, now you do this today. But the thing is this, when we sit with God, when we seek relationship with God, then God speaks to us all kinds of ways. It can be to another person. It can be an idea that can, comes into your head. It can be, oh, I, you know, I am so full of love for God today. You know, it's that personal connection. And here, when you look at the signs uh, and the works of Jesus here, he's showing you what that magnificent God can do for us because God loves us. You know, I, I think it's helpful, and, and I think you come from a different background um, where that's really positive. Um, I, I came from a background that time with God is an expectation. It was a should. And it was so strong that if I wasn't doing enough, I was disappointing God. And I don't hear you saying that. Uh, what I think this story is saying that's maybe more in parallel is this is not an expectation, it's an invitation. Mm -hmm. And it's an invitation to have insight into God and insight into ourselves. I often think God has got the scrub brush ready to wash me clean because God sees all the dirt. And one way to hear this story is actually God is ready to say mazel tov. <laughs> So if I'm ever thinking God is disappointed, I'm imagining God wrong, God is ready to celebrate who God has made me to be. And then the invitation might be, anytime I get ready to get my scrub brush out for my brother or sister or my child or my spouse, instead I could choose to get out some wine. <laughs> How different would our experience of God be if in moments, the, those moments where we thought, oh my God, you're disappointed again, we could say, oh, how about some wine together? <laughs> Insight in the story. And um, affects how we treat each other, but I think also affects not only how we view God, but how we view God viewing us. It's a two-way street. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think for me, because of my own baggage, I can't hear words like should are really hard because they, they map into this place as, oh, I'm not enough. Um, we all come from different places. Invitation. Yeah, Invitation to quit cleaning and start celebrating. Yeah. 
And, and I will tell you, interestingly enough, one last thought on weddings, because my brother just got married uh, uh, last year. It's not even been a year, it's been 10 months. He, he converted to Orthodox Judaism and had an Orthodox Jewish wedding. Listen, I do lots of weddings, and I tell couples, they say, well, how long is this going to last? 12 minutes, which is, which is how long it lasts, by the way. <laughs> wedding is 12 or 15 minutes. Uh, I went to an Anglo-Catholic wedding one time. It was an hour and a half. Uh, because we sung five hymns, each that had seven verses, and we sang every verse. And then came the communion, and that took a long time. But not only did we do that, the priest did the dishes in front of us, you know, like the ritual oblations, so that we could see everything had been properly cleaned. And I thought, wow, all the celebration of the wedding was gone about, well, an hour and 12 minutes ago. Uh, because 18 is really when it runs out, you know? I mean, whew. So I try to approach these weddings from, let's make it celebratory, which means short, and if you're going to add communion, that's its own thing, you know? But, but the ceremony itself, short and celebratory, because that's what we're there to do, not officiate, but celebrate. I'll tell you, even the shortest, most celebratory Christian ceremony I've been at or conducted pales in comparison to the Jewish wedding. In the Jewish wedding, the basic structure goes like this. Um, there's a rabbi and there's some procession, just like we have, but they, they bless this glass of wine. And then, um, that's the first thing that really happens. And then there's seven blessings. So instead of your friends getting up and reading a scripture or singing a song, they bless you as a couple. It's scripted. They give you a blessing. And after each blessing, you drink some wine. <laughs> and what a sign of, of celebration. Now, interestingly enough, you know this, the, la the, the wedding ends where you step on the glass. Um, but I thought, you know, um, as a wedding person, I don't think our ceremony has enough joy in it. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think it does. And um, boy, I'd much rather have my friends get up and bless me than read a scripture passage. I know we could say it's doing the same thing, but it's just, it's framed differently. You know, and I wonder, I mean, I, I, to be honest, those Jewish blessings, they come right out of the Torah, but, but they're, they're sort of announced as blessings on the couple. And the wine, of course, is the symbol of celebration. Um, so it's an interesting thought. Um, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't do this with a cold couple. But, you know, the next couple I, I, uh, I, I celebrate the marriage of, I might ask them, do you want to have some wine at your wedding in the ceremony? And do you want family and friends to give you a blessing? Because, uh, gosh, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful, lovely tradition symbolizes what the relationship's supposed to be like, and not just that relationship, but the way all relationships could revolve through the insight of marital vows and living into them. Probably ever talked to Cana. <laughs> did I miss anything, or? Well, you also said that in, in your homily that the, that the wedding of Cana was coming out party for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and his mother actually pulled him out of the yeah. closet. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he didn't come out willingly. Yeah. You think that's very significant? 
Yeah, I mean, I do. I, you know, I, 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 and I, I think what I told you in 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 the sermon is the sort of the same thing. Is you know, part of like being part of the family of God is to say, here's an opportunity for you to use your gifts. I don't care if you're ready. Like this, if you choose not to take this invitation, God will do it some other way. But it's not because you're needed. It's because you can. <laughs> I, I used to hear, growing up, God needs me to save my friends, and that's poppycock. God invites me, invites me to join God in doing these things. And listen, if I pass, I mean, God's God. Like, it'll, it'll happen one way or another. Maybe not till we're all dead, but fine. It'll end up happening. But So it's not an obligation or they're going to hell because you didn't do this. It's an invitation. Do, do you get the same feeling with Matthew, Mark, and Luke about an invitation? I don't know. That's a good question. Because I don't. Yeah, I'll tell you, most people don't read John as an invitation either. But um, this year, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next time I might hear something different. Yeah, um... In Luke, yeah, I think there's definitely invitations. And the, the big, there's the story about the, the, about the well, well, you know, it's about a wedding banquet. And a lot of people say, I don't want to come. And, and the host packs the party with people who weren't originally invited. Right. And the story sort of says, the party's going to go on with or without you. But this is a party you don't want to miss. I mean, again, I think it's an interesting way to, to, to frame it. It's not a school lesson or an opportunity to earn a degree. It's a party which is supposed to be fun. And if you miss it, you miss down on the fun. Right. So I think Luke may be so. Mm-hmm. Luke may be so. Uh, Matthew's a little more severe because of who Matthew's writing to. But well, it's written for, really for the Jews. Seems to be, yeah, yeah. seems to be. Um, okay, you know, the interesting thing is clearing the temple. We get to read about that. You know, in John, that happens right up front. And in the other Gospels, that happens... Right at the end. Now, as a Baptist kid, you know, of course, what I grew up is, well, Jesus did it twice. <laughs> but I want you to know, it was probably silly. I mean, just, it's silly. Um, and, and so that you know, there's a diagram. This is where these pictures are maybe helpful. Uh, behind you, just to give you an idea of the scale of what's going on. I, this is like four football fields big. It's, it's huge. And um, the temple actually is just this part here. And, and the rest of this functioned like, well, an Acropolis. So that's a city above the city, literally, in Greek, right? I mean, that's the same thing in Athens. The Acropolis is up there. Well, you can look at the city here. Well, where's the marketplace? They didn't have shops like we have now. This is the marketplace. So this is where all the vendors went, and the vendors, you see, didn't go in here. This area is called the Court of the Gentiles, because anyone can go in there, but if a Gentile person went through those doors, they could be killed on the spot. Not by crucifixion. Uh, ancient equivalent to lynching is to get stoned. Right? So that just, that's, that's what happened there. Um, the thing is, even though you could have your shops up in this huge area... You couldn't bring money in there 
uh, because the money of the day had the portrait, well, of Octavia or Tiberius. And graven images, you know, in the, in the Decalogue are forbidden. So y y this is where all the commerce is happening, but you can't use the standard currency because it's idolatrous. So right down here, actually, and you'll see it here below, this is where the money changers are. They're changing your money from uh, the, denar the denarius or the talent. A talent is like a million dollars, right? Very few people have that. Denarius is a day's wage. Um, they're changing that money to a solid silver coin that has no portraiture on it. I used to know the name of the coin. Um, it comes from one particular region in the Roman Empire. Um, and I forgot. This happens when you get older. Um, you, they'd get these silver coins. Now look, I, it's not like the exchange rates were exorbitant, but it is true that you can only conduct commerce with this particular coin that you don't really use anywhere else. And you have to trade money in to get it and trade back when you leave because that little silver coin won't serve you when you leave Jerusalem, essentially. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It's sort of like if you go to, um, uh, to Disney World and you buy Mickey Bucks. It's cute and it's fun, but you can't spend the dang Mickey Bucks at McDonald's. You've got to cash them in when you leave, and they might not. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. So, so straight cash is fine for me. So people are having to pay the commission in and out. And beyond that, um, there's an interesting thing happening in this temple, which is that the debt records of people are kept in the building. So the temple has become not a house of prayer for all nations. Certainly all Gentiles are welcome, so all nations are invited. But instead of it being a house of prayer, the scriptures are saying it's becoming a nest for robbers. It's a place where people who are profiting from religion are able to have a base. I mean, they're not homeless profiteers. They're based there. Sometimes we hear this and we think, oh, we should never sell anything in church. This is not about that. This is about people profiting, exploiting people off of faith. Not only... Um, because you have to do this transactional currency and, and there's money, you know, and you have to do it. So they're exploiting the exchange rate. Um, but also because the debt records for the temple tax and what you owe the Romans are kept up in the temple. It would be like having the local IRS agency in our sanctuary. It's this bizarre merger, you see, of church and state and power. Um, so, again, this is not about Jesus doesn't want you to sell Anglican prayer beads because you should never sell things in a church. This is really about exploiting people and doing it in God's name, quite honestly. Selling Anglican prayer beads is not that. I just I want you to know that. Uh, selling art in the hallway is not that because you don't have to do it. In the temple, you had to do it. <laughs> you have to pay the tax. And the tax is exorbitant. And if you can't pay it, you have to put your land up. And if you default, the temple takes your land. 
and gives it to the priests, interestingly enough, who are not allowed to have land. And this is the kind of thing Jesus is commenting about. So again, at face value, it's don't sell stuff in church. It's not about that at all. Flipping over the money tables and driving away all the commerce, Jesus could not possibly have done. I mean, just look at the scale of that. There is no way Jesus went up there and stopped anybody from coming into the temple. That's a hyperbole. That's, that is two or three football fields full of vendors. I mean, he wouldn't even have the physical strength. I mean, that's like doing an Iron Man to go flip all those tables over. You know, that's what he'd be doing all day. Instead, it's a sign. Don't you see? It's, it's a sign, something you could see that gives you insight into the criticism. If he'd flipped over all the money and disrupted commerce, they'd have killed him on the spot. I mean, just want you to hear. There's no way you could do that. It's like shutting down the Mall of the Americas with a gun. That is really the equivalent. And you also had to purchase your uh, sacrifice there too, right? Yeah, I mean, you could have brought it from somewhere else, but see, most people come to Jerusalem on, like, festival days, and if you've gone a long way, I mean, you don't want to be bringing a lamb with you or a pigeon. So, sure, I mean, when we could say, oh, it's because those sacrifice sellers were charging unfair rates, I, I mean, maybe... But I, I don't know if that's necessarily it. Now, with regard to this cleansing of the temple, you're saying that is really uh, sim symbolical for a deeper problem? The, I, I, I think if we focus on the particulars, and the video said this, so we focus on what we see, we miss the insight. <laughs> and again, we just... Did you know that's where the debt records are kept? No. Or that there was money commissioned? I mean, again, that affects the... If yeah. The fact pattern affects what the story could mean. So the te temple authorities were very angry with Jesus for whatever he did. So what is it that he really did do? He said they're phonies. Oh, so it's what he said, not what... It's what the act... The actions speak louder than words. Well, you, he also said, this is a house of prayer for all nations, you made it in a robbers. I mean, it's both and. Yeah, right. Well, I, that I understand. But if you said he didn't turn over any tables. He might have turned over a few. There's no way he turned them all over. That's what I'm trying to say. There's no way he cleared the temple out. I mean, again, he would have been executed right there. Yeah. So... Yeah, if he just turned over a few, he got everybody's attention. I mean, here's how it would have worked. He goes up and flips over a table. The guy behind the table says, what the hell are you doing? Uh -huh. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Uh -huh. Get out of here, you crazy. I mean, but, but you know, the story's memorable because it's in all four Gospels because it represents Jesus saying that, you know, that this is supposed to be a place of access to God and instead it's a place where oppression in God's name has become located. It's the capital of oppression. Jesus is not anti-temple. I mean, he was dedicated at the temple. You can read that in Luke. He went there to pray. He probably went there for Passover. But it's sort of this both end. It's kind of like when Martin Luther goes to Rome, and he, see, and he actually bought an indulgence himself, but he sees what indulgences are doing. They're being sold to build St. Peter's. The Colosseum was being denuded to build St. Peter's. And Martin Luther sort of said, hang on a second. This, this seems like it's exploiting people. 
in their area of their spiritual need to really prop up a small segment of the aristocratic priesthood. I don't think that's what God had in mind. I mean, that's, that's really Luther's critique. For what it's worth, Luther did not intend to be a Lutheran. He intended to be a Roman Catholic. But this thing bugged him. <laughs> and when he pushed on it, the pushback he got was so hard that it forced him to leave. So, I, I didn't think... Jesus wanted to burn the temple down. I think what he wanted to do was cleanse it of being a base of exploitation. Remember, uh, the, the Thistle group, or, or, uh, it would be a, another provocation. He was already going around doing things that were suspicious, and then he, he hit them at their very core when he did that. Yeah, and, and it, but see, and, and then here then also that if you're Rome, this guy's saying the tax business is wrong. So it's not just a challenge to the priestly class. This is an act of insurrection, which, by the way, is what he gets executed for. Because this is where Roman revenues are based. Beyond that, you knew the temple was made that big because of something called the temple tax. You used to have to pay it once in your life. Herod the Great instituted it that you paid it every year, and it was darn expensive because, as I've told you, that's the eighth wonder of the ancient world. And um, people at the time write about that. So this is, this is a t- Herod may turn that thing into a little dinky chapel into huge. And if you've seen, like, the Wailing Wall, you said there's nothing special about that. There's not. It's a retaining wall. It's a retaining wall. And it's huge. And it was backfilled to make this ginormous Acropolis. That's the Mall of the Americas. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, Herod, Herod turned Jerusalem from a, a podunk regional capital into a truly cosmopolitan city by building that. Um, should we move to John 3? If I'm wasting your time, you're going to tell me, right? This is a really cute incident because I learned this as a kid. and In fact, probably we all did. Uh, you have to be born again. And of course, if there's, a little, there's a little superscript on that if you look in your Bible. And it says, or born from above. <laughs> so it's really interesting that I think the whole conversation is based on Nicodemus misunderstanding what Jesus says. Jesus says, you've got to be born from above. What do you mean, born again? How can I get in my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, you silly. Like, you, you misunderstood, right? You have to be born not just physically, but there's another birth of your spirit. Spirit, remember, just means moving air. There's this, there's this other breath. It's almost like Jesus seems to be saying there is... Uh, more than meets the eye. I don't think he's talking about ghost in the machine, but there's a way of living that's ordinary and there's a way of living that's extraordinary. And uh, to accomplish the extraordinary way of living, I mean, it, it really almost amounts to be having a new total identity, sort of like getting new wineskins did, right? I mean, you have to change your container. You have to be born totally different. 
what we wanted to do, you see, when I was a kid, was pray the sinner's prayer, and that was that, instead of changing our container. Again, think about the container change we already talked about. When I get out the Brillo pad to clean my brother, I put it away and we celebrate. I don't do that. <laughs> Actually, since I prayed the sinner's prayer, n now I want everyone to do that. And if they don't, then they really need the Brillo pad. Do you, you see what I'm saying? There's a way to do this where instead of actually changing it all, we've just got extra things we're worried about in one another. Or there's a way where we start to view each other and say, what could I celebrate in you? <laughs> As you are. Yeah, you know, it's like what comes in the baptism and that uh, young woman, you know, she was a different person. You know, she was still herself, but her, what, she was lifted up and her attitude about a lot of things changed into more positive. And it changed how she related to people in a much better way. And, you know, those, those things can happen periodically through life. Uh, if, we, if we truly are seeking God, the calendar that says, you know, if, for those who are seeking God, what they will, what they bring is exactly what they will get. In other words, if we're seeking God and want relationship with God and trying to walk with God, then we will get that. But if we just go to church on Sunday and forget about God the rest of the week, forget it. Yeah, I, I sort of think the scriptures have a different view of that. I think God is able to accomplish more than we can ever ask or imagine. I think God gives us way more than we bring to the table or deserve or merit. But I do think the idea is God is constantly inviting us. Mm -hmm. So we just have to say, I'll try. <laughs> I'd like to show up. Yeah. And, you know, if I ask God's help, you know, you'll find it's what we make up our minds to do. In other words, if we keep just thinking about it and don't follow through, that's one thing. But when we say, I am going to do this, and this is how I'm going to start today, one step at a time. You notice Nicodemus knows Jesus is from God because of the signs, right? And sign's a great word because it, sign points to a reality deeper than itself. Right? I mean, even a street sign or a map points to a reality greater than itself. A map is a micro version of a, of a macro reality. Right? So he gets that, but he doesn't really know how all of this works. And it's interesting that he just seems very confused. The book highlighted, he comes to Jesus in the dark, which is figurative. I mean, uh, isn't that interesting? And, and Jesus doesn't say, shame on you, really. He, he sort of says, he's confused that a teacher, that this, this priest, essentially, doesn't understand the God that he regularly explains to people. I mean, that's sort of Jesus' comment, which is uh, a not-too-clandestine criticism of the clergy. Um, probably makes sense. Uh, he says this other interesting thing, right? The Spirit blows where it will. 
my favorite part that we often forget when we see John 3.16, John 3.16 at football games, you know, you must be born again, is that Jesus follows that with, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world could be saved through him. My experience as an evangelical was that if somebody didn't make a salvation decision, they were condemned. But Jesus didn't come to condemn people. Jesus came to save the world. You see, it's different, the world. Jesus didn't come to save some people. <laughs> the world. <laughs> God so judged the world that God sent God's only begotten Son. No, no, no. God so loved the world. We just got the emphasis wrong. And for my own baggage on that, you know, I mean, God didn't really like me, but God loved me. But I made God mad a lot. I mean, again, living into this, no, no, God loved the world, and God wanted to save the world, not some of it, globally, that's in the passage. <laughs> and Nicodemus can't really understand that. I think because we can't understand that either. I just want to be honest, right? Because how do we define the world? You know, after 9-11, I think we were pretty sure God did not come to save members of Al-Qaeda. Um, but, but John is really sure that God loves them and came to save them alongside everybody else. That's a, like a tough thing to contemplate. It's easy to say, because you just try to think of who's the person I tend to hate the most culturally and God loves them too. But of course, it's really easy, really difficult to do. I mean, I just tell you, I go to HEB and I see people wearing a burqa and I'm like, take off your burqa, this is America. Like, it's just so strange. You know, like, why are you wearing a burqa in HEB? And, and, I, and I think I'm, you know, pretty, you know, open-minded and stuff, but I catch myself doing that sort of stuff, you know? And I catch myself thinking, hey, God helps those who help themselves. So, like, listen, why are you asking me for money for your light bill again? Again. I mean, surely you're a disappointment. But no, I, I don't think, I think John's trying to actually correct that thinking, not reinforce it. And the question is, scrub brush or wine? And I think we can read the whole of chapter 3 that way. There is a weird thing in here, you know, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the, in the wilderness. Do you know that story? Once upon a time, the Israelites were walking through the wilderness and they were complaining. There was no food in the desert and they were hungry. And there was no water in the desert and they were thirsty. What's the matter with them? And they complained, we're hungry and we're thirsty. I mean, what's this people? They're so faithless. I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm being sarcastic, obviously. So what happens is they, they arrive at a pod of snakes that apparently are venomous. So you're thinking asps or cobras or something indigenous. And the snakes just start biting people because God's annoyed with them. So this is what God does. When you're annoyed, God will send poisonous snakes to bite you. And they say, Moses, uh, why is God killing us? And Moses says, God, why are you killing them? I'm annoyed. But listen, Moses, here's what you do. Make an idol. <laughs> Make a bronze idol, 
That's a graven image, a snake, right? Make a bronze idol and hold it up. And if people look at the idol, then they won't die when the snakes bite them. Please notice the snakes don't go away. Uh, the snakes apparently continue to bite the people. But if they look at the idol, they don't die. Now, this is a bizarre story. Bizarre. And I'm not really sure. At face value, I don't think Jesus is praising the people for their idolatry. I think what he's suggesting, perhaps, is that um, even though we will continue to feel the bite of serpents, the venom might be removed. Which is to say maybe that God did not come to change the circumstances of our lives and make us always fit and never get an injury or experience arthritis, that we would never have disappointment, that God will help us win the lottery and be really rich, good, helpful Christian people, but that actually when disappointment comes, it doesn't have to be venomous. I mean, I like that reading of the story. It's so strange. That story is so bizarre. Yeah. You know it's an idol because the people name it. And then they put it in the temple. And, and again, how, how is it that God had just said not to make one and then God tells Moses to make one? It's bizarre. It's, it's super bizarre. <laughs> and you know what they're making, by the way, is like the medical symbol. You know, the two snakes. And probably had wings, and that's a seraphim. A seraphim is a flying snake with wings that's perpetually on fire. It is probably what they made. The Greek god is called Asclepius, and there are these sanctums of Asclepius where you can go and have miracle healings, like the kinds people have at Lourdes um, in France. Maybe this is not interesting. Oh, two other thoughts on a chapter. <laughs> um, Jesus says that... Uh, the deeds we do are done in God. And some people are afraid that uh, they're afraid to come to the light because they're afraid of exposure. They're afraid of exposure. But that's when we get the follow-up. God didn't come to expose us and make us feel ashamed. God came to save us. Do you notice at the end of chapter 3, there's a really weird bit where... Um, John is baptizing at the same time, well, Jesus is baptizing, but it wasn't really Jesus, it was just his disciples, and John hadn't been put in prison yet. It's very awkward, because it says Jesus did, and then it says he didn't. Um, I don't think, I don't think he baptized anybody, did he? Well, <laughs> yes and no. So at the end of chapter 3, he was doing it, Oh, but it wasn't him. It was his disciples. <laughs> so clearly, there's a, John's writing to people who had been baptized not by John the Baptist, but were claiming to have been baptized either by Jesus or the disciples. And it's, it's messy. Because probably what they were saying is, my baptism counts more than yours. <laughs> Did he baptize anybody in... By name? No. In... Or in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? No. And nor did the disciples baptize anybody. And critical in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't say a word until John goes to jail. So Jesus picks up where John left off. He doesn't compete with John. In John, he does. 
In John, Jesus is not related to John. The only gospel that has them relatives is Luke. Says nothing about their familial ties in Matthew or Mark. I'm not saying they weren't related, but only Luke says they are. In Lent, you'll read why that is, if you want. (laughs) Why I think, anyway. John's happy. He's not there to compete with Jesus. He was there to prepare the way. So, uh, So this is all really good. You know, I must decrease, he must increase. That's chapter 3. Did I miss something that was important for you in the discussion with Nicodemus? I mean, I'm, by the way, you know I'm not saying you have to do what I do with it. I'm not. And I'm, and I'm a loud mouth and I talk too much. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because if he came to save the world and we follow it up with uh, Jesus and the Samaritan, yeah. Um, then, he, then he's here to save everyone, regardless of whether they're American Indians out on, out on the prairie or India. Or Nazis. Yeah. yeah. Don't you hope that's true? Well, it, <laughs> I didn't for a long time. I hope bad people got punished. Well, I, I kind of think that we, we were all arrive at heaven, some of us may have to, I don't like the word purgatory, but maybe some of us need a little bit more longer to learn than others. I, I think what you're saying, I mean, makes some sense, but I don't think Jesus is talking about salvation is happening after we die in John. I think he's talking about right now. And I would say what you just said is true of life. I have lived in purgatory. Sometimes of my own choosing, we have had bouts in hell, sometimes deserved and some undeserved. I think God is most interested in everlasting life, beginning now and certainly later as well, but but beginning now. But if people choose not to follow God, there is no last chance. Uh, See, I don't. I don't agree. I think. I. I think somewhere along the line, uh, we'll, we'll all arrive at the same point. I mean, strange, I guess. But he talks about. Jesus talks about it last uh, when he comes in, and you know, the sheep and the goats are going to be good, going to be separated from the dad. I think that's what the meaning of that is. Uh, you know, uh, we understand the sheep is those who follow God and did God's will as best they could. Well, what happens to the goats? You know, where did they? Where did they? What happens to atheists? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is a good. You know, I, I don't want to overdo this because I think this is really hard, and I and I and I want to make sure we remember, in general, our Jewish brothers and sisters then as now do not believe in eternal torment for the damned. Um, if, I mean, there's such a small population of Jewish people that believe in, in like long punishment for folks and the only kind of folks are like Hitler and Haman. Um, 
But in general, our Jewish brothers and sisters believe if you, if that would be your bent, instead you're just destroyed. There's nothing left of you. You're like erased from the fabric of the world. At the time of Jesus, there is definitely no belief in an eternal hell that has ironic punishments and fire and pitchforks. There's, just, there's not. I'm not saying since that's come that it's wrong, but I do think there's this interesting um, thought on that, which is, you know, the things we do in this life, what, what's the longest we're going to live? 119 years? Maybe? That's the, is that the record? 116 years? And very few do that. I mean, why would God punish us eternally for something that we did temporally? I mean, eternal punishment doesn't even seem just. Purgatory seems just. Yeah. You know, you, you were bad for a year, you get punishment for a year. You know, it's tit for tat. But, but the hell I grew up believing in, and I did, was like, you know, you could be a great person, but if you didn't believe in Jesus, God would torture you forever. I mean, that just doesn't seem, well, it doesn't seem just or, frankly, loving. I mean, I would never do that to my child. I, I, I lovingly let my children experience the consequences of their behavior, even though it grieves me. But, but I would never, you know, if my child told me a lie, I would never want them to burn for eternity. And I'm a petty human being. I mean, surely God's not like that. So goes my thinking. Um, again, I think we get really hung up on accountability. We, we really get hung up on accountability. But do, do, you know, I guess I always wonder, do atheists hate the living God or do they hate the God they've been introduced to? Or is God just not exist in any dimension for atheists? <laughs> You know, I mean, there's this interesting thing like in the 12-step curriculum where you say my life has become, you know, I've become powerless over drugs and alcohol and I've turned it over to a higher power. And your higher power can just mean humanity, which is greater than me. If you don't believe in anything greater than yourself, it's really hard to do the 12-step program. But, uh, I mean, essentially, I think it's really hard not to think that there's something greater than just me and the world. And... uh, I don't know. I mean, again, I... And yet the people that I know are wonderful people. Wonderful. But they believe, they don't believe in anything higher. But they, they don't live their life, uh, you know... Awfully. No, they're great. They're wonderful people. And you, uh, to be it's honest... They don't believe that, and they were raised that way. And when, and when you read Matthew about the sheep and the goats, it's not about what they believe, it's about what they did. The, the, the sheep are the ones who saw people in the hospital and visited them, and visited people when they were in jail and fed hungry people. The, the goats didn't do that, but they said, Lord, we've performed miracles in your name. And Jesus says, I didn't know you. <laughs> I mean, isn't that interesting? Um, do you ever wonder if you lived during Jesus' time, if you would have followed him or not? Well, no, because I, I am such a good, upright person. I clearly would have made all the right choices. I mean, I, I have the sin of hubris myself, but yeah, I mean, I think if we think honestly, and we're going to read about this this week, Jesus, you know, preaches in his hometown, they get ready to throw him off a cliff. Mm-hmm. 
So what would we throw him off a cliff for? I mean, I think that becomes a really interesting thing. What could he say to us that would make us so mad? We almost have to imagine that so that then we'd know what to listen to. You know, I mean, it's, it's a great question. But see, the interesting thing about the Samaritan lady is, is, uh, that comes in chapter 4 is that she represents like a, not just a godless person, like an idolatress in so many ways. So remember that the Samaritans were made when the Assyrians shuffled everybody around and mixed all their ethnicities and religion, and, and they couldn't worship in Jerusalem because the Judean people hated them. So they had to build their own shrine on Mount Gerizim, and the Jewish people said, you're, you know, you're polytheists, you're half-blood traitors, you're nasty folk. And Jesus comes and talks to this lady who is not only all of that, but also is on her sixth relationship with some guy she's not married to. I mean, a lot of people highlight that she comes to the well in the middle of the day, which is hot, instead of in the morning, maybe because no one else will let her. And the read I got is she's an adulteress, but remember, women are property. It's very possible her husband's died, or they divorced her because they didn't like her cooking, or she only had girl children and no boy children, so they divorced her. And she's living with a man who's not her husband because she can't own her own business or make her own income. She's either going to be a prostitute on the street or a sexual commodity for just one person. What would you pick? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, honestly, it casts this woman as like doing pole dances when she's probably just starving. And this is her only means of surviving. We, ha we tend to read this from the slant of women who do this are bad instead of <laughs> women get treated like crap and they have to survive however they can in a culture that doesn't value them. So really important to reframe the scene. The other thing that's weird uh, is that this is Jacob's well, and in, in the Bible earlier, you know, anytime there's a conversation between a man and a woman at a well, there's going to be a wedding. <laughs> so Abraham's servant meets Isaac's wife at a well. Jacob meets his wife at a well. Moses meets his wife at a well. So when there's a well, you hear wedding bells, and so you almost have... Or, I know it's going to sound strange, but this is like the strangest wedding flirt scene there ever could be. In some ways, the frame is, and I read a, a commentator on this, is that Jesus might be flirting with this woman at a well. I know you'd say Jesus didn't flirt with anybody, but just go with it for a second. You know, because instead of them having like a really deep philosophical dispute, I'd tell you at a minimum, they totally talk past each other. We, we could read uh, Jesus as being this sage guy and everybody approaches him and just wants to know more. Or you could hear him say, woman, get me something to drink. <laughs> Which is not sagely. I mean, you know, uh, you could have said please. That would have been more polite. Now, I know that's not how men spoke to women. But uh, she says, rightfully so, I mean, look, like you wouldn't even drink the water I gave you. You're Jewish. If I touch it, you think it's got cooties. Like, what are you doing asking me to do this for you? If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd ask him and I'd give you living water. I mean, just, she could be earnest, but I think she's, imagine, she's talking with utter sarcasm. You don't have a bucket. 
Where do you get that living water? Well, do you think you're greater than Jacob, our ancestor? The answer is clearly no. No one's greater than Jacob. He does well, right? I mean, he's Israel. Well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but if you drink what I've got, you'll never be thirsty. Then why are you asking me for a drink? I mean, you should, I mean just... <laughs> Oh, oh, sir, give me this water. I, you know, that's just what the lunatics say. you got to have water. <laughs> Go get your husband and come back because you incompetent woman. Uh, I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right. You've had five. Oh, I see. You're a prophet. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, there's many ways. We don't have tone in scripture and I know you may be thinking well Jesus would never be catty because cattiness is just not okay but really I mean how do we know that there's this other thought I mean living water living water means just moving water uh, rain is living water and um, rivers are living water speaking about baptism you find instructions in the early disciples manual it's something called the Didache that when you baptize somebody it needs to be in living water the ocean you know, stream, not a pond. See, that's not living water, that's still. Not a basin, unless it was filled with living water. So if you've, if you, if you've got a, a gray water container that catches the rain, that's good, you see. But, but not some, uh, something you draw from a, a tap or a well. <coughs> you, don't get ba you baptize in some living water, right? Always. I captured some living water from the Jordan and we always put a bit in there. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it again, you know, here. It would be probably 65 degrees and that's great, it's refreshing. Um, <laughs> but you know, I did read this serious commentary and again, I, didn't, I don't want to be off color, but if they're flirting, what kind of living water is Jesus talking about? I mean, um, it could be very uh, flirtatious and maybe colored naughty. Uh, the Baptist in me doesn't want to read it that way, but, I, but I've read that commentary. Do they just do they assume living that uh, well water is living water? Uh, no. Even though ultimately it, it's catchment from rain, but no. You, underground aquifer. Yeah, I mean a spring is different because you can see that moving. Yeah. Um, this is a weird scene there because again it shows him talking to a dirty, unacceptable cultural woman from a you know, who's not strictly Jewish. You know, she, she could be Wiccan. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and Jesus is, takes time to talk to her. Um, and this is the first time he says, I am he. I am he. Uh, this is really important because, um, remember, in Hebrew, God's name is the verb I am. This is written in Greek, and that doesn't work in Greek, but that's kind of what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying God's sort of sacred name that you don't say. Only a Greek person would have Jesus say that. A Hebrew person would never, you just wouldn't do that. The disciples are astonished. He's talking to a woman, you know. I mean, can you believe that? He's talking to a woman. It's like talking to a homeless person. Uh, could be astonishing for our relatives. I mean, that's not even a good... That's not even a good parallel. I mean, again, who would you, who would your family be embarrassed for you to talk to? That's who he's talking to. People come from her invitation, and see, that's the interesting thing. She invites them, 
and they say, hey, we didn't believe because of what you said. We believe because of what we've seen. So we always talk about, here's what God's done for me once you consider what God would do for you, which could be very different from what God's done for me. But our experience is an invitation for you to have your own. I mean, I think this is an interesting thing. I didn't get this. I was taught there was one experience of God. It's the right one. <laughs> but there should be lots of them. Ours is just the invitation that, hey, you should have one too. <laughs> he doesn't make these people become Christian. Do you notice? They don't, they don't like carry crosses and um, have the Lord's Supper. They don't do that. These are Samaritans. So, so uh, again, their response to Jesus is, well, probably not ours. Could, could, it, could it also be interpreted that Jesus welcomes all people and the Samaritan woman is an example of someone from another Culture or the country or something? Yeah, I think so. And, and honestly, that's think about the parallel here is the story of the good Samaritan. Yes, yes. That'd be an oxymoron. No Samaritan is good. Right. So, so the good Samaritan is like a transgender gay Osama bin Laden with AIDS who pooped and didn't wash his hands. Right. And that's the good guy. Right. There's no way that's good. I mean, any one of those is a disqualifier, but it's so hyperbolic just to mash up all of those qualifiers. That's what Luke does. And this is John's version of that. It's a woman who's been disowned by five men. Women can't divorce their husbands. Husbands divorce the women. She's been disowned five times, and she's with somebody, she's with somebody who won't even treat her like real property. And Jesus talks to her and talks about living water. And of course, what he's not talking about is never-ending hydration. <laughs> I would want that. Um, and then the last thing we get, right, is, is that he heals... Um, a royal official whose son is ill. The other accounts do it for a centurion who's not quite a royal official and it's the centurion's servant, not their child. You know, uh, And it's interesting that royal official comes maybe not in faith, comes in desperation. <laughs> Wouldn't you be desperate for your, as he says, little boy? I mean, you'd, you'd do anything, don't you think? It's interesting... We say such great faith. This is somebody at the end of their rope. I mean, honestly, if you thought it would help your sick little kid, I mean, you'd consult a witch. I know that sounds crazy that I just said that, but if, you, if there was a chance it would work to save your child, you would do it in desperation. I mean, don't you think you would? I've had some chronic pain before, and in desperation, I started with like the rheumatologist and the orthopedic and should I move the nerve in my arm? No, 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 no. And then I, <laughs> I was desperate. I got like acupuncture in my ears, it was super weird, you know. And I ended up going to this person who treated food sensitivities by, you'd hold a vial of the food against your head with one hand and you'd put your arm out. And if they push down, 
and you had some sensitivity to the food, your arm would like quibble. It was super weird because I, I was holding this like corn sample and I was like, don't move, don't move. My arm was like, stop it, stop it. And I couldn't, and I couldn't stop it. But when I held the egg, I was like, I'm good. And I was good. You know, it was so weird. Like, how did she trick my arm into doing this thing? And, and if you held it, then they would like, she would sort of like, <laughs> you did this with one hand and she would give me like some chops on my back and then put me on a magnetic table. And if I didn't eat the corn for a day and I came back two days later, like she would do this and my arm wouldn't move. It was so weird. Did it work? I mean, my arm didn't move when I ate the corn. It, no, didn't, it didn't cure my chronic pain. There you go. And I know it's like, that's crazy. But when you're in pain, you'll do anything not to be in pain. I mean, just you will. Had migraines for years, and I'll tell you, by day three, I would have converted to Islam. I mean, I, I'm sorry, you would, anything. you would, you would. I don't think it's that I would never do that. Listen, the pain's bad enough; you'll do anything. I mean, just you'll do anything. And for our kids, I mean, again, if you thought it would work, if you thought it would work, you would do just about anything for your kids. My son uh, had severe allergies when he was little. And um, I remember visiting my parents when uh, it came up, and I know this knew this pediatrician because when I used to work at a hospital when I was pre-med, that always on Sundays made us do anything that he test that needed to be done. He would insist on being done, even though we were young and <laughs> because he cared about the kids. So they started Douglas on this thing that where you a drop under the tongue would then uh, remove. It's a homeopathic thing. If you if you would. Uh, dilute something way back, and then something of that somehow releases yeah. something. Yeah. I don't know if it works. And, I, and so when I saw the pediatrician that had been treating Douglas, that we were doing this, and it was working, he said, well, you know, we want to sweet think of that as, you know, like uh, dancing around a fire and asking for something. And I said, well, I could dance around a fire and make Douglas better, because he was really You would do it. I would do it, and I was doing it. And it worked. I mean, and working is weird, right? Because the placebo effect is real, and, it, and it, it's real. So even if you think it might work, it might just be that that makes it work. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that's the, the kind of faith the person has. And you, sometimes we hear like, oh, these people absolutely trust Jesus. No, they don't. And there's no way they do. Nobody absolutely trusts. Let's just be honest. Nobody absolutely trusts Jesus. I know that's a wild statement, but nobody does. But they come to him in desperation. And even in desperation, he's there. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Oh, you don't believe enough. You don't believe for the right reasons. So glad you brought your desperation to me. So glad. So you can think about that. Normally, if our faith's not good enough, God will scrub it off with a brush. And here's Jesus saying, here's some wine for you. (laughs) So glad you brought your desperation to me. (laughs) Just a different frame. Um, And it seems like there was just one more thought to offer. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And, and the thing that they said at the beginning is seeing is believing. But there's this other interesting thought he reframed, and I'm so glad he said it, is often what we believe influences what we see. And it's this really interesting thing. If we think life is grim and sad, that is probably what we will experience. Mm-hmm. And if we think that life is a gift from God, That is probably what we will experience. And, you know, in in Luke, Luke tells it a different way. Luke tells this parable about a poor guy and a rich guy. 
And the poor guy is really poor. And when he dies, he goes to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich guy goes to Tartarus. And he says, send the poor guy back to my brothers, because if someone comes back from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham says they've got the law and the prophets. Well, no, no, no. If they have a, a miracle, they'll believe. And Abraham says, if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they'll never believe even if somebody comes back. It's sort of like saying, if they don't believe that God is active and caring, they will never see it. <laughs> That's an interesting thought for us. You know, if we believe that annoying people are utterly depraved and wicked, that is always how we'll experience them. If we believe that about ourselves, that's how we'll experience ourselves. I mean, I'm sure that's right. Yeah. So, so the question is, what do we believe? And John's going to keep asking that question, what do we believe? Not just, does God heal sick people, but what does that tell us about who God is? If we get caught up in the miracles, we miss, I think, what the miracles are trying to tell us. I'm not saying miracles aren't real. I'm saying if all we think about is God uh, gives blind people their sight back, I think we're missing, the, we're missing part of what that's meant to guide us to. We're missing the insight. I think so. I think so. Okay, well, I'll see you next week. Thanks for being here.